Where is your heart? It's wherever your treasure is. Now, when I say, where is your heart? I don't expect you to start feeling around somewhere between your chin and your waist, because I'm not talking about physiology. I'm not talking about the person you are hopelessly in love, love with. I'm talking about it in terms of the investment of your life, your motives, your attitudes, your thought patterns. Where is the concentration and the preoccupation of your life? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Most of your time planning? Most of your energy dispensed towards? What object? Let's find out what our Lord Jesus Christ says about where our heart should be. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. We return to Matthew chapter 6. We begin a study looking at verses 19 to 24. Rich, thrilling, challenging, convicting verses. We may be spending several weeks in these verses as the Spirit of God directs our thoughts. Matthew 6, 19-24 Let me read them for you as a setting for what we are going to say. Lay not for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and wrath doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be healthy, the whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Yet ye cannot serve God and money. End quote. Now the question that arises out of this text is a very simple one. Where is your heart? Verse 21. And it's wherever your treasure is. Chances are, if you think about it very long, and you're like most people, the answer is something. A house, a car, a wardrobe, a bank account, a savings account, a bond, stock, an investment, furniture, a thing. We really are creatures committed to things. That's part of the curse of the society in which we live. Now, not all societies are like that. There are some societies where they just don't have things. They are too poor. But we are a society of things. Things to sit on. Things to sit at. Cook on. Things to eat from. Shiny new things. Things, things, things. To clean. Things to wash. Things to do for the summer. Things for the shops. Uh, winter cold weather for those who have winter. Things for the big things. Luxurious things. Expensive things. Things on four wheels. Things for the bedrooms. Things on two wheels. Things to add to the interior. 
things, things, things. And at the end of the day, you will lock the door and hope something doesn't get taken or a thief doesn't come and take your things. And that's the way life goes, isn't it? And someday when you die, they only put one thing in the box, you. And somebody said, there are no pockets in the shrouds. But you see, in spite of the stupidity of that, and it really makes it sound pretty stupid, we are basically committed to acquiring things. Sadly, the leading religionists of the day of Jesus had the same problem. They were totally consumed with things. Among all the other problems of the Pharisees, this was also to be included. They were thin-oriented. They were greedy. They were avarious. They were covetous. They were manipulative and they moved towards grasping more things. And so, as we come to this element of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, Jesus directs some statements about things to the Pharisees who were abusing this whole matter of possessions. Now remember the thrust of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. The thrust of the whole Sermon is basically to sweep aside the low, inadequate, insufficient standard of the Pharisees and reaffirm God's divine standard for life in his kingdom. They had invented a whole system of religion that was substandard, man-made, inadequate, inefficient, ineffective. And so the key to the whole sermon is in Matthew 5.20, where the Lord says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to be in my kingdom, you must live to this standard. And he affirms the standard and he does it in contrast to the Pharisees. For example, in the beginning of chapter 5, he said, to be in my kingdom, you have to have the right view of yourself. Now, the Pharisees are proud, egocentric, self-sufficient, but you must be broken in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You must also have <coughs> the right relation to the world. The Pharisees are part of the corruption and part of the darkness, but you must be salt that returns the corruption and light that dispels the darkness. <coughs> you must not only have the right view of yourself and the right view of the world, but you must have the right view of the word of God. And the Pharisees had, they have developed their own system. But you must know that the word of God is what you must be committed to. And not one jot or tittle shall pass from that law till it's all fulfilled. And then you must have the right view of moral issues. Chapter 5 verse 21 to 48. The Pharisees are only concerned with the externals. They are only concerned that they don't kill or they don't commit adultery or they don't do something else. But I'm telling you, Jesus said, you, the moral, I'm telling you, the moral issues are not just what you do or don't do. They are what you think or don't think. And so you must have the right view of moral issues. 
Then in chapter 6, he says you must have the right view of religious issues. For the Pharisees, they fast, they pray, they give, but it's all hypocritical. You must fast and give and pray, but with the right motive. In other words, the whole sermon is set in contrast to the system of religion of the day, dominated by the thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is saying, God's standard exceeds their standard, and it is his standard required for being in his kingdom. Now in chapter 6, 19 and following, he says you must also have the right view towards wealth, luxury, verses 19 to 14. And watch this. Then from 25 to 34, you must have the right view of necessities. So he's talking about things here. First luxuries, then necessities. First it's the wealth that we have, and then it's just the necessity. To the to eat and to sleep and to have a place to stay and some clothing to wear. And in both cases, the Pharisees had missed it. They had the wrong perspective of wealth. They had the wrong perspective of necessary things. And so in every element of Christ's message, he sets himself and his word in contrast to the Pharisees. Your view of wealth and luxury must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you want to be part of my kingdom. They have the wrong perspective. Verse 19, they are doing exactly what that says not to do, laying up for themselves treasures on earth. They are consumed with greed and covetousness, and that is not the way it is to be. So our text from verse 19 to 14 deals with how we view our luxuries, our wealth, more than our, more than our, more than our necessities. And by the way, some of us live in a society where all of us have to deal with that because all of us are wealthy in comparison to the way the rest of the world lives, both in the West or in Lagos, Nigeria, where I live. I live in both places. If you don't think you are, you are, then you haven't been outside of your little box to see how most people in this world live. So our text is talking about how we handle our luxuries, our possessions beyond eating, drinking, sleeping and clothing, the luxuries of life. And if we are in his kingdom, we have to face what he says. And people, this is very convicting. Believe me, it gets to me. I've got to preach this thing for the next few weeks just as well as it'll get to you. It's very provocative, very heart-searching and very convicting. And we are just going to introduce it today. And then in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about it. Please don't switch off. Don't switch off the podcast. He's because I'm talking about money. Jesus talked about you, about it. I beg you to listen because this isn't my message. I'm here receiving like you. This is the Lord's word to us. And God always gives us a good word in order to free us up to know his great blessing. So don't cheat yourself. You know, backing up for just a few minutes, the first 18 verses of chapter 6 showed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' religion. I'll tell you something, that it is just as night follows day. It's as sure shooting as it could possibly be. 
wherever you have hypocritical religion, you will have greed. It follows right after 18 verses of, on hypocritical religion of the Pharisees that the Lord would talk about their view of wealth and money. Because inevitably, where you have false religion, you have greed. Where you have a false teacher, you get behind the scene and you find out he's a false teacher and invariably you will find out that he's in it for the money. That's why the Bible says we are not to be those who discharge our ministry for the sake of filthy lucre because that is an inevitability. In fact, the Bible characterizes hypocritical religion usually in two ways. It is greedy of money and it is immoral in its lusts. Those two things follow the cause of false religions and false religious leaders. We find even in the Old Testament that it is true. That where you had hypocrisy, you also had greed for money. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you come to Eli the high priest. Eli, of course, sits at the top of the pile in the religious matters of Israel. He is the key religious leader, the high priest before God. He had two sons named Hopni and Phinehas. And his sons were men of great responsibility as sons of the high priest in the priestly line. They were men of great responsibility before God and the people. But they were phonies. They were absolute hypocrites. They were totally immoral, lustful, lascivious, and lewd. They were evil, vile men that the Lord finally struck dead. But Hopni and Phinehas, because they were spiritual foodies, were characterized by greed. And that is illustrated to us in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because when Leviticus 7 said, The offering that is brought to the Lord, a portion goes to the priest. The breast and the right thigh goes to the priest. But Hopni and Phinehas said, when the offerings come, we will examine the offering and we will take all that we want and leave the residue for the Lord. See, I mean, they were in need to get everything out of it they could get. And that's exactly what they did. And the Pharisees were doing the same thing. They were using their religious position to fill their pockets. The system was a system that filled their greed. They were using their religious position to get rich. And let me tell you, there's nothing more foul-smelling to the nostrils of God than that. I dare say there are some people in our own country, in our churches, some of them that you know fairly well from seeing them on TV or wherever, who are doing exactly the same thing. Wherever you have religious hypocrisy, you inevitably have the problem of greed. Now, the Pharisees were living in this way. To them, to be rich was to be holy. To be rich was to say, hey, how much? Look at how much I've got. God is blessing me. I'm rich because God is saying, you are so righteous. I'm unloading on you. That's why when the Lord said, you see, it's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom. That was absolutely and utterly shocking because to them, riches were the stamp of divine approval on your life. You had it because God gave it to you because you were so righteous. And to say that a rich man could no more get into the kingdom than a camel could go through the eye of a needle was really shocking, was really a shocking statement because they equated money 
with the blessing of God. That was their whole system. And so they greedily gathered money. When the and when the richer, the richer they became, the more they pretended to the people that this was the mark of their spirituality. Now, where did they get this concept? Just taking a guess. Look back at Deuteronomy 28. And it may be that they first began to develop this concept from this thought. When the Lord had delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them to the edge of Canaan, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Deuteronomy 28, look at verses 1 and 2. And the Lord says, as they are preparing to go into the land, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord, thy God, to observe and to do according to his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God shall set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come to thee, and take and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord. The basic command is the basic command here is obedience. If you do what I say, I'll bless you. You are going to you are going into the land. It's a simple thing. You do what I say, I'll bless you. And how will the blessings come? In verse 3. Blessed shall thou be in the city. Blessed shall thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. That's your children. The fruit of the ground, that's your crop. The fruit of your cattle, increase of your cows, flock of the sheep. Blessed shall your basket, shall be your basket, your kneading through. Blessed shall thou be when you come in, and blessed shall thou be when you go out. All these blessings, notice this, all these blessings were material blessings, physical, tangible, visible, earthly blessings. God says, you obey me, and I will bless you visibly, tangibly, materially, and physically. Conversely, look at verse 15, and here you have the opposite. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come on thee and overtake thee. Cost shall be thee in the city, cost shall be thee in the field cost shall thou be shall thy basket and thy kneading through cost shall be the fruit of thy body the fruit of the land the increase of thy cows the flocks of thy sheep cost shall thou be when thou comest in cost shall thou be when thou comest out or thou goest out in other words god says material blessing is the sign of your obedience material poverty is a sign of your disobedience. Now, there is much more to understand about that, to perceive it, to perceive it in its true context. But the Pharisees, I believe, had probably begun to build their phony system of things like this. That the more you got, the more it proves that God is blessing, which is a misinterpretation of the whole point of Deuteronomy 28. But nonetheless, out of this acquisition, of material wealth became their greatest goal so they could parade their supposed righteousness and say look what god is done for me 
that's how holy I must be. And they may have been misapplied. Proverbs 10, 22, which says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich. Whatever it was that they took and twisted, they desperately wanted money and became perverted and greedy and corrupt. The Old Testament warned us against this. Solomon said, He who was rich, and yet it was vanity and all vanity. In the Decalogue, in Exodus 20:17, God said, Thou shalt not covet. The warnings against riches are replete in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 23, 3, it says, Labor not to be rich. Proverbs 28, 20, it says, He shall make it haste. He, he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. In other words, the Bible warns against greed, covetousness, and hastiness, and being rich. Luke 16, 14 says, The Pharisees were covetous. They wanted money. They wanted material wealth and possessions. That's really all they had going because they were earth, they were earthly. <clears throat> they were earthbound because their religion was false. And so it's against the backdrop of the greed of the Pharisees that, that our Lord speaks. And what he is saying here is that we must have the proper view of money and wealth and possessions. We must handle our possessions and our money and our wealth and our luxury like we do anything else. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But we do so much of it to the indulgence of self. That's the problem. That was the problem of the Pharisees. The problem is the heart of man. Man is greedy and you have to divert his heart from covetousness. And that's what our dear Lord is wanting to do in this text. is to divert us away from covetousness. Now, in order to know how to handle our luxuries, we have three alternatives in this text. We have three alternatives. There are two treasures, there are two visions, and there are two masters given in this text. And in each of these three alternatives, you have the very same principle hit from, from a different angle. And then you have some subordinate reasons why that principle is to be obeyed. The principle is given, and then the reasons are given in each case. <coughs> so we have to make a choice. First of all, verse 19 and 20, whether we lay up our treasure on earth or in heaven, we make a choice. Secondly, verse 22, 23, whether we, we are going to exist in light or whether we are going to exist in darkness, we make another choice. In verse 24, whether our master will be God or our master will be money. Because it can't be both. We make another choice. So the Lord really gives us three choices. Which really come together to be one choice. And that is to choose properly how we handle our wealth. This is a tough message. 
is tough on me because I am also a creature of my time. I am also somewhat a victim of the impressions that the culture makes upon me. <coughs> and as John Stott has said, worldly ambition has a strong fascination for us and the spell of materialism is very hard to break. And he's right. It's difficult to deal with this. And so I want us to be very conscientious as we let the Spirit of God speak to our hearts about this matter. I just want to say one other thought. Sometimes it would be so easy if the Lord would just say, hey, I got, let's solve, by solving the whole deal, just take 50% of everything you've got and give it to me. Wouldn't that be easy? Really simple. We could all say, hey, I gave my 50% and then say to our friends, did you do yours? And we could discipline them right out of the church if they didn't. Because we'd have a standard. And that standard, most of us can, can do it. it. That would be dried and caught. Formulated, tabulated, learnt by routine and just cranked out. But the problem with that is you'd never have then gotten to the real issue which is the heart attitude. God doesn't want to get something that's given because you're afraid of him. He wants to get something that's given because you love him. And so the Lord doesn't give us some kind of absolute legalistic standard. He merely gives us a principle. And when you hear the principle which says, lay up treasure in heaven or serve God, not money, you might at first say, well, it's kind of vague, but it won't be by the time we're done. Now, some people go to church and they say, preachers always talk about money. Well, I'm sorry if you are a first-time listener of this podcast. That's what we have today. That's not the normal topic. We just talk about money when the Lord talks about money. And as you know, this is the Sermon on the Mount and we have started from verse chapters 5 and we are systematically, verse by verse, as much as possible, going through it. So um, that's where we are at this moment. And let me just mention this. In the book of Matthew, the Lord talks about money 109 times. In the book of Mark, he talks about money 57 times. The book of Luke, he talks about it 94 times. The book of John, he talks about it 88 times. And the Lord talks about money five times more than he talks about any other subject in the Bible. I guess he figures we're a little hard of hearing. And when it comes to that theme, he really goes there. Now let's look at number one choice, verse 19 to 21. Two treasuries. I'm just going to read the first part, verse 19, and then the first part of um, verse 20. And we're just going to touch the principle this morning and get into the reasons for it next time. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, verse 19. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a very simple statement. Two treasuries, you have an option to choose. 
You have a treasury on earth, you have a treasury in heaven. Jesus said, put it in heaven, not on earth. Where do you, what do you do with your wealth? Don't invest it here, invest it there. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be also. Now, this introduces us to the whole concept of our money. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. It isn't money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of it. You can have none of it and love it like mad. You just can't get hold of it. It's the love of money that corrupts. For, for example, Achan in the Old Testament, instead of inheriting the promised land, he died with his whole family because he decided to take what God said don't take. In his love, he saw a goodly garment and he saw some coins and he stashed them in the ground in his tent. And the Lord confronted him through Joshua and said, you'd better confess your sin because you're going to die. And he did. He died. And everybody in his family died. The love of money. Remember the story of Solomon who kept amassing fortunes and fortunes and fortunes until he was the wealthiest man in the world. And when it was all said and done, he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, emptiness, uselessness, meaninglessness, void. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira who decided that they were going to keep some of the money they promised to the Lord and God struck them dead. And then there was Judas who for a pittance sold the son of God and went out and hanged himself and his body burst open and his bowels gushed forth and he crashed to the rocks below. And then there was Demas, of whom Paul said, he has forsaken me because he loved the system. And you could go through many other illustrations of those people who, because of the love of money, were devastated and destroyed in some degree or another. And so we all need to learn about this because it is self-destructive if we don't, as well as destroying everyone around us. So we have to understand what he's saying. Let's go to verse 19. Lay, up, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a little word study on this. The word theorizet, we get the word thesaurus, which is a treasury of words from that. It's a play on words. It means treasure not treasures. It means treasure, not treasures. Don't stockpile. If you want it in a simple sense, the idea of the word treasure is to place something someplace, to stick it somewhere, to stash it somewhere. And so what the Lord is talking about here is not that which, is not that which we use to live every day, but that which we just pile up. It's not our necessities. It's not that which we use to meet the needs of our own life, of our family, of the poor, of the Lord, for setting aside money for the or setting aside money for the future, or making wise investments that we may be better stewards of God's money in the days to come. It's not that which is active, it is that which is stockpiled just to amass for our own selves. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about luxury. He's talking about that which is beyond what we can possibly use. It's all those things you don't use. 
you just stash them somewhere and keep saying they are so valuable and so you keep them. The implication is that there is an abundance too numerous for use and so you just pile it up. So what is he forbidding? Does he forbid a bank account, savings account, life insurance, a wise investment? Does he say we shouldn't possess anything? Lay not, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth? Some people say that means you shouldn't possess anything. Don't have any earthly treasure. What you should do is sell it all and walk the streets. Get a brown bag and just... Is that what he's saying? They say the rich man, the rich young ruler, Jesus said to him, sell all you have and give to the poor. Have you ever noticed that that's the only person he ever said that to? Did you notice that he didn't say that to Mary and Martha because he, he liked to go to their house? And when he got there, he also liked their cooking. So the Lord is never condemning possession. possessions. The reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had was because all he had stood between him and God. And until he got rid of that, there was no connecting up with God. No, the Lord is not looking down on ownership. We just read Deuteronomy 28. God said, I'll put you in the land and I'll prosper your families and your cattle and your sheep and your crops. And he went on and on about all that. No, the Lord is not saying we can't, we shouldn't possess anything. In fact, do you know that in Exodus 20, 15, it says, Thou shalt not steal. And the very statement of God, in the, that very statement of God in the Decalogue, Thou shalt not steal, assumes that something can be mine that you can't have. We have a right to possessions. The Bible talks about that men are not to steal nor to rob because people have a right to their possessions exodus 20 27 thou shalt not covet the lord recognizes the right of ownership of goods the right of personal property another illustration acts 5 ananias in acts 5 ananias and Sapphira had a piece of property so they said let's sell the property and we'll give all to the lord but the problem was they sold the property and they looked at all that money and they said, oh, we said we were going to give all that to the Lord, but, but let's keep a little back. And the Lord knocked them dead in front of the whole church, flat dead. And before he did, he gave them a message through Peter. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not yours? And after it was sold, was it not your in your power? In other words, it was yours. You had power over it. You had control over it. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to promise it. The issue is you lied to God. But the point I want to make is it was theirs. But because they'd given it in promise, they needed to follow that through. The Lord always tests us in, in this. But God tests us sometimes about our promises. The Lord has given us the right to possess things. All he wants is to be sure that our attitude is right in the manner in which we possess them. God is not withholding from us. 
And God is not of great. God is a God of great generosity. In fact, I think if you study the history of the world, you will find that the nations that have been the most godly have known the greatest prosperity. That is generally true. God is a God of generosity. Do you know that business, for example, and wise banking principles are encouraged by our Lord in the parables in Matthew Matthew chapter 25 and Luke 19? Did you know that the very rich man Abraham was called a friend of God and that God made Jacob Job wealthier than he'd been before? And he was so wealthy before he couldn't hardly he couldn't hardly count it. And did you know that Zacchaeus was rich and yet was counted to be called a son of Abraham? In Proverbs chapter 6 it says, "Go to the ant and see how the ant works." She provides food in the summer and gathers in the harvest. An ant smart enough to plan for the future. An ant knows how to save. Why savings are very important. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all labor there is profit, but the, tr- but the talk of the lips tends to penury. In other words, if you want to be rich, work. If you want to be poor, talk. Proverbs 21, 20 There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. In other words, a wise man knows how to save, how to plan. Proverbs 22.7 says, The borrower is servant to the lender. It is wiser to lend than to borrow. And so wise business practices are indicated throughout scripture. Well, what do we see then in passages of scripture? What we see then in these passages in scripture tell us that laying up treasure in heaven or laying up treasure in earth is not some kind of issue that says we are not to possess anything, we are not to enjoy anything, we are not to accept from God good hand, God's good hand, those abundant things He's given to us. The New Testament says the same thing. What He's saying then, what is He forbidding? Lay up, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does that mean? He's not talking about what we have. He's talking about the attitude towards what we have. It is right to seek needed things. It is right to provide for your family. It is right to plan for the future. It is right to make wise investments. It is right to help the poor. It is right to have enough to carry on my business. It is wrong to be greedy. It is wrong to be covetous. We are right back to motive again. If I am doing this to use it to the glory of God in the life of those around me and in his kingdom, then I have a right to all of it. But if I'm gaining it to stockpile it and to hoard it and to keep it and to amass it and to indulge myself in it, that is sin and you're right back to dealing with that attitude again john wesley was an extremely wealthy man now when we think of john wesley as a great man of god a great man of prayer a man devoted to the time in the word of god up every morning for hours in the greek text studying and we think of him as a man of some low means john wesley was extremely wealthy He gained his wealth from the hymns he wrote 
and the books he penned. And at one period of time in his life, he gave away well over 50,000 pounds sterling. Just gave it away to people, which was a fortune in his time. He was a wealthy man and he gave his fortune away. And when John Wesley died, his estate was worth 28 pounds sterling. I promise you one thing, he didn't lay it up on earth. When it came in, it went right back out in the lives of people. It went right back out, invested in, in the kingdom of God. You see, the issue of the Greek word here is that we don't pile up, that we don't need what we don't need and don't plan to use. I might add that some people do this under the guise that they are hedging against some coming doom. That's a problem because you are not living by faith. You don't believe God will take care of you in the future. Just amassing money. I've heard of two men, wealthy men. One man was uh, was um, in, in was in a church. He was a professor at USC. He had saved a thousand pounds to invest in a piece of real estate. It was a good investment, and he made another one and another one. Then he stopped teaching because he was worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. He just made a purchase recently of 68 million. Incredibly wealthy man. He took, he looks 15 years beyond his age and he lost his family in the process. But he's got millions piled up all around him. For what? And you think about the word of God that goes out on a shoestring, struggling and stretching for everything. It isn't that we are giving all we can give. Is it? It's just that we are possessive. That's the problem. Just piling up. There was another man, man, Dr. Criswell. Some people criticized him because he was very wealthy. When he was younger, he made some investments that was that were very good. And then one day, after 30 years as a pastor of the church, he presented a check to the church as a gift. The check was for the amount of every penny they'd ever paid him in 30 years, plus interest. Some people asked one of the people in the church staff, does he get a salary? And they said, well, kind of, but he gives more than he gets every year. You see, it isn't the issue of whether you have, it's the issue of what you do with what you have. Whether it's for you or for the kingdom of God and his purposes, there is no smaller package than a man wrapped up in himself. That's really true. A mentor of mine told me of a time when a friend of his came over and said he'd had a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem was that he had 500 shares that he couldn't take his eyes off. So he gave it to my mentor. My mentor initially re refused it, but he was convinced to take it because his friend didn't want it. When he got these shares, he suddenly started looking at the shares every day. Has it gone up? Has it not gone up? And he got distracted because of the shares. He eventually sold the shares for 10 pence or 10 cents or something like that. 10 years later, it had turned to 10, $10. But 
he had his he had his mind together you know the things we possess can become the idols of our lives and the lord is saying don't pile it up the selfish accumulation of goods extravagant luxury hard-heartedness towards the cause of god look at the words of verse 19 again i'm going to close with just this reference lay not up lay not up for yourselves that's the key and i mean if you want to invest if you want to pursue a successful business if you want to be aggressive and honest in what you do and i do the best and do the best for others and for god and for your children and for your parents and for the poor and for the depressed and the oppressed that's one thing and when you start but when you start piling it up for yourself in extravagant luxury and become materialistic then you have violated you have violated this principle examine your heart are you really a christian that might be a good indicator i saw a story of a little boy swimming in a river flapping around and flashing his arms and splattling the water and on the shore immediately in front of the little boy is a sign no swimming and a man walks up along and looks into the river and says to the land didn't you see the sign no swimming and he said please sir i'm not swimming i'm drowning sometimes swimming and drowning look a lot alike and i think there are some people in the church we think are swimming but they are drowning you need to examine your heart what's your attitude towards luxury wealth money god help us to put these things in practice this is only the beginning the best is yet to come as we continue this series let us pray thank you father for a clear word in this area thank you for the promise that obedience brings blessedness and that you have told us these things not to deprive us of money deprive us of money but to reward us eternally to make us rich forever in the things that matter thank you for every dear and precious person that listens to this podcast and we pray that every life and heart might be touched including my own in this regard that in total unselfishness we may set our treasures in heaven help us to give and to give and to keep on giving unendingly to the one who gave us all things to the one who gave all of to all of us we pray this in the name of jesus who though he was rich yet for our sakes became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich amen <music>